0: Hello there. I'm Patrick Strofe, president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services and trusted authority for transactional liability. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. I've got to say just on a personal note real quick, when you're doing these interviews, you know, you're big dream is to and have a monster guest who's breaking some news out there. So I had no pressure to my guest Scott here, but this is something I'm very, very excited about today because we've got uh, a true icon in mergers and acquisitions in America right now. Today, I'm joined by Scott Hendon, national and global practice leader for private equity for BDO. BDO is the fifth largest accounting firm in the world that generates over $10 billion in annual revenues has 191,000 employees working in 167 countries so it's a special treat to have scott here because today we're going to talk about the newly released bdo private capital pulse survey report which was just released scott it's a pleasure to have you welcome to the podcast
1: uh thank you patrick maybe just a little bit about myself as you said scott Hendon in here and uh i Just to cover a little bit about my background, I'm originally from Lubbock, Texas. Uh, I moved to Dallas, Texas about 35 years ago. I went to Texas Tech University. I uh, got an MS in taxation. I started my career at Arthur Anderson, and I've been with uh, BDO for 20 years. Uh, I, I learned early on in my career that I wanted to get into private equity, so it didn't take a, a brain surgeon to figure out that there's a lot of money uh, in motion, a lot of action. So I really wanted to get into the private equity side. And um, once again, I, I realized that there's a lot of services and a lot of value that you could add to private equity. So as you said, once again, I'm a partner at BDO and I uh, currently I'm the national and global leader of the private equity practice. I'm also on the board of directors for uh, BDO USA, and I'm also on the uh, board of directors of BDO Capital, which is our wholly owned investment bank of BDO USA. Uh, besides uh, actively coordinating services and resources for our private equity clients uh, globally, I'm also an active investor. So I also invest in private equity, invest in pre-SPAC deals, pipes, and C-Round. So I think I have a unique perspective in that I know both the service side to the private equity funds, as well as being an investor in there.
0: So you've been on both ends of the table, probably, you know, if there are four four sides to a table, you've been on all four of them.
1: That's right, and it's been very good to me on all sides there, Patrick.
0: Well, outstanding. So let's talk about the private capital pulse report. How did this come about? What is it about? And and give me some comments before we get into details.
1: Sure, so um, first of all, the, we've been doing the uh, private equity uh, survey for over a decade. Um, I will say that it used to be a lengthy report that we did every 12 months. And we tracked year over year what the trends were. Um, and once again, we we interviewed 200 uh, Private equity fund, or I'm sorry, funds 100 private equity and 100 venture capital funds. So that had been working great, and we'd been doing it for over a decade. We had a big following; it's covered by the press very well. Um, then we came into to 2020, and we did uh, back then. we were doing uh, one survey a year, so we did our uh, you know our questions in late February, early March, and then we published in um, early April. So as you can imagine, the change that happened between February to April in 2020, the uh, it was really, you know, once again, a lot of the data, a lot of stuff that we're tracking and it just wasn't relevant. Right. Because obviously COVID was the thing of the hour. So we pivoted on that and we went to more concise uh, reports. It's our current pulse survey and we're doing that two times a year. So we do a, a spring and a fall. So we just released our spring And we've done uh, a release for uh, fall of 2020. And I think it's a lot better. It's uh, more concise. It covers uh, a lot, you know, the major issues out there. But more importantly, by doing it every six months, it allows us to have a better beat on fund managers. You know, it's more frequent. It's we can tell what emerging trends are doing, you know, real time sense of what's going on. So uh, once again, that's kind of the history of that. Uh, and once again, we get a lot of following out there. It's when uh, we get a lot of coverage globally in regards to what's coming out of the survey.
0: Well, it's a good, clever name having it, Private Capital Pulse, because if you're doing this a little bit more a- as real time as you can, you are on the pulse of things. So, yeah. uh, you know, kudos to your marketing department to come up with, with, with uh, that good title there. We can go in a lot of directions with this on this because it is a big report, but why don't we just get, get a little macro first, all right? What's the marketplace like for deals for private equity, you know, specific to mergers and acquisitions?
1: Sure. Um, so first of all, at a high level, and then I'm going to dig down a little yep. bit into to the the survey, but uh, as we sit today, the activity is incredible. So Q1 of uh, 2021, it's one of the best quarters that the BDO private equity practice has ever seen. So that's kind of where we're at today. Now, if you roll back to 2020, not to look back, uh, always looking forward, but you roll back to 2020, yeah, you know, there was two and a half trillion dollars of dry powder sitting there on the sidelines. Deals were frothy. And uh, this same from January to March, everything was going great. And, you know, uh, pricing was good. Then COVID hits in March and then from march to yeah exactly from march to june the deals basically all got pulled back everything came to a screeching halt the banks weren't loaning the private equity funds were just trying to hunker down and figure out you know how to how to thrive and how to be resilient during uh, the covid crisis so anyway so there's little activity from march to june and starting in june i think the private equity funds were getting a lot more comfortable and uh, how to do due diligence, how to mitigate the risk. Learned how to, how to, to work Zoom. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, and anyway, some of the deals started coming back, the bank started loaning again. Um, so then you roll forward to the Q4 of 2020 and uh, you know, private equity is very resilient. They figured out how to adapt. And so the deal flow, all the old deals were coming back on the market that were pulled, a lot of new deals, a lot of people, because the pricing is good, I think a lot were saying, hey, are we going to have another wave of COVID? Or mm-hmm. some were anticipating potential capital gains increases. So we just had this tremendous amount of deals come out. Plus SPACs were really getting the momentum going up. They'd raised a lot of capital. So mm-hmm. Q4 was really hot. And then we roll into Q1. And just like I said, not to be redundant, but you know, it, it's been Q1 of 2021 has been extremely, extremely uh, hot and and a a good time for certainly from the deal market and a lot of activity going on there.
0: Is it safe to say, you know, because we're still in the pandemic, but I'm going to call this post-pandemic right now for purposes. But would you say that activity and financial strength in uh, this period right now, post-pandemic, has surpassed the pre-pandemic levels? Is that safe? You
1: know, I would say it's right there. I will say just, I think one thing that came in is all the deals that got pulled and put back on, plus mm-hmm. all the deals coming out. So it has, uh, you know, it certainly is right there. The, as far as the banks, the lending, you know, everything's come back with a vengeance. It's, it is amazing how resilient and resourceful that private equity has been. And, and, you know, I'll go into a, maybe a little bit later on some of the things we're seeing in the survey, but Certain things have changed out there, you know the what tailwind companies, and certainly there's you know there's new industries, you know a lot of digitalization, and other things. But man, the the market is is really good. I'd say it, it's at as good or even better than uh, pre pandemic.
0: I would say I would want to ask as you get in, just you could take whatever direction you want. But you you had a section on there for key competitors. And one of the things okay. I I find that's very encouraging about mergers and acquisitions, just the American economy in in general, yeah. is just how it is constantly expanding, it's constantly evolving. And you just look at the number of private equity firms out there. Five years ago, you know, there were maybe a thousand private equity firms that were, or just over a thousand. There are four thousand plus private equity firms now.
1: Yeah, I think it's closer to five thousand just okay. in the U.S.
0: So, you know, let's, let's draw from that. Let's talk about competitors in this landscape,
1: now. You bet. So I'm going to, and I'm looking at my survey here too, um, Patrick, but yeah. So the competition now, once again, we did, I'm going to do a comparative analysis from the fall survey to today. So what, once again, we uh, pulling the, you know, what I'm personally seeing, I think it's consistent. What, what the fund managers uh, feedback they gave us now, the uh, number one competitor for deals. it's it's generally strategics and private equity are kind of one one and two. That's what we generally see. Of no surprise, strategic buyers came in as what the fund managers thought in the next six months would be the major competitor for deals. So that came in about fifty two percent. It's up three and a half percent over the fall survey. One thing that's really surprising is is that hedge funds and mutual funds, and what the the fund managers uh, said in the survey, uh, they said it was it came in the number two spot at fifty one percent said that they would be a major competitor for deals, and that's up twelve and a half percent since the fall survey. So I was really surprised on that. Sovereign wealth funds were in at uh, forty point five percent. It was up about four percent, and then uh, PE and VC uh, funds. Had fallen down. Usually, once again, they're one or two for what they, the fund managers themselves were saying. They said that they thought the most competition, you know, what would be coming out and uh, private equity and VC firms were coming in at um, the fourth spot or fifth spot at 36.5%. So they dropped eight and a half percent. So was a little bit surprised about that. Now, we also just added SPACs because I think if you look at the, the SPAC cycle, you know, if you go back uh, a few years, you know, they were kind of downstream, they weren't a major player. Obviously today, you know, the major banks and they're raising a lot of capital. Now they only 23 and, and a half of them said that they saw the SPACs as a major competitor. So once again, that was uh, yeah a little bit lower than I thought, and we don't have any comparative analysis, uh, but we'll, we will start tracking that for future well, surveys.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's, let's just, you know, focus on the SPACs real quick because the one thing about the SPAC is, you know, for, for us that are in the transaction world, you know, the A in SPAC is acquisition. And so there's no vehicle that's more ideally suited for mergers and acquisitions and for the, the, the insurance in that area than the SPACs. And yeah. while there's been legislation proposed and rule changes proposed that's really cut off the SPAC IPO activity, you still have over 400 SPACs out there looking for an acquisition the next two years. And so, you know, I agree with you, their, their presence just showed up overnight. And, you know, it's still early in the game, but I mean, what are your feelings vis-a-vis SPACs out there in the marketplace?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I think just uh, what we're seeing on the survey, I think it's just the, this is the magnitude of the site. You know, there's so much capital out there. I don't, I think SPACs, you, you said that it had slowed down some, well, you know, SPACs, you're right. There's over 430 SPACs looking for acquisitions. I think maybe a hundred have been identified, but they've raised a lot of capital yes. and 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 they're, they're uh, coming out with really good prices, and if, if they don't get their acquisition within a 24 month period, they have to give the capital back. So yeah. certainly, you have SPACs that are out there, and I I, I see this as a uh, long term too. It'll continue out there. That you know, you were talking about uh, the SEC came out with uh, basically just an interpretation of how warrants should be accounted for. Mm-hmm. So you had that out there. There's a uh, quite a few restatements that are going to have to be done, but you know, the, the SPAC market slowed down quite a bit. Uh, and the pipes have, you know, kind of slowed down as well. But I, I don't, I don't see that as a long term effect. I think mm-hmm. the main thing is that there's so many out there looking for deals. I think that, you know, some of the IBs, uh, you know, once again are slowing it down. Maybe some are trying to get some people to pivot to IPOs. But they're a great vehicle, and option to go public. As you said, there, you know, there's a lot of advantage on there. If I we don't have enough time on on this podcast to go through, but I like it out there. I think it'll continue. Continue to be a competitor out there. I just think the 23.5%. I think the only reason it's that low is just because the magnitude of all the other players out there. But I, I can I see Spac still being, you know, a viable option going public. It's really, you know, it's a lot easier to do an acquisition related than roadshow. There's, uh, yeah. you can get 50% of your capital back, and anyway, th- you anyway, know, there's a lot. Of it, generally, it's faster to market than a typical IPO. So there's a lot of benefits out there. And I will say, even though they're a competitor to private equity, there also been a really good exit strategy yes. for private yes. equity. So a lot of the P back companies, we're seeing a lot of the funds that are wanting to ensure that their uh, portfolio companies are ready to, um, to SPAC or go into mm-hmm. the D SPAC transaction. So they're definitely uh, you a know, competitor on one side, but a great opportunity on the other. And then we've also seen some of the, uh, private equity funds uh, do their own SPAC raise for certain mm-hmm. verticals out there just because, you know, once again, it's a good vehicle to raise capital and go yeah, out doing
0: and do it. And, and, you know, there's got to be exits for for somebody. And as as these portfolio companies are getting bigger and bigger, you need a bigger fish to eat this whale that that you've developed, yeah. you know, from a guppy. And so I think it's great for the MA ecosphere that there, there's another place for these bigger exits to go.
1: Absolutely. And I will say one thing, I don't think it had a huge impact on this, but some of the funds, you know, we had uh, a certain number that were under, you know, 2 billion or, mm-hmm. you know, of assets under management. A lot the SPAC market obviously is the bigger deals out yeah. there too. So that might've had a little bit of impact, but I think overall the reasons it's at 23 and percent is just because, the size of, you know, the $2.9 trillion of dry powder that's sitting out there.
0: Exactly. You mentioned the report, some key drivers for M&A. Why don't we touch on those real quick? That's more of a macro issue as well. Sure.
1: Yeah. So uh, great question, Patrick. Now what we saw in the survey for the drivers of deal flow or what the fund managers thought would be driving it over um, the next six months. First of all, they, um, private company sales and capital raises. Um, so that's, it's at 50% said that would be the major driver. It's exactly the same as the the fall uh, survey. So those are exactly the same. It's what I'd expect to see there. One thing that was a little bit surprising was succession planning. So I think a lot of them think that some of the the uh, generational companies that typically send it on to the next generation, they're going to have to exit out. Maybe it's COVID, who knows but anyway, whatever reason, they they thought that succession planning would be one of the major drivers of deal flow coming up uh, in the next six months. And it dropped from our fall. It was at 37. It, it went all the way up to 48%. So it's big, a big jump there. As far as uh, the next one down would have been trades to other financial buyers or, or strategics. That came in at 46.5%. Uh, no surprises there. Investing in distressed assets was next, and that actually we we've, we've been expecting you know uh, distressed assets to come to the market, right? Because you're kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. But um, anyway, there it actually dropped uh, the anticipation on that two percent. But once again, for whatever reason, the banks have been you know trying to work out, and, it, and anyway, we just hadn't seen you know this maybe stimulus money and other things. We just hadn't seen the distressed assets on the market yet but that, they listed that as uh, number four out there. That, that
0: was a surprise, yeah. we were. Yeah. Th- the industry was preparing for a lot more distressed deals, yeah. and it didn't come and, right. And
1: you would expect eventually that'd be the case, but I think that's what, based on what the fund managers are seeing, or what, you know, anyway, that, that was their anticipation of the market. that Also on public to private transactions, or mm-hmm. taking private transactions. They, 41% said they thought that would be driving deal activity. Mm-hmm. So they're looking for, any public companies, even though I would say the public markets have been pretty frothy as well. But yeah. anyway, yeah. they're still looking for you know key deals out there, and that was up two percent. Yeah. Corporate divestitures is at, it's up six mm-hmm. and a half percent, and that's at approximately thirty eight point five. And what uh, and that that makes perfect sense, and because a lot of the the company big companies out there are trying to shed non strategic businesses, lean and mean lean in main, get back to their, uh, you know, what they do best and and uh, jettison out what, uh, and, and have a clear focus. So anyway, they're they're anticipating to see a lot of divestor transactions and a lot of ones that can come out, take, build it and, uh, you know, build it out and flip it.
0: Yeah, we'll see. And, and the comment I had on this, the observation is, it, is from a conversation you and I, I had earlier, because we're both old enough to have gone through multiple cycles between whether it's 9/11, you got the dot-com uh, yep. implosion, you have the financial crisis, and then now you got the pandemic. And in business yep. owners that have gone through that cycle, at, at some point I'm sure they're putting up their hands and they're just saying enough. Yeah. And in addition to that, you've got a situation. one thing about that didn't change in the pandemic is time didn't stop. And right. Everybody's getting a little bit older.
1: Yep, and I think that has a lot to do with uh, where they go back to secession planning, private company sales, for exactly what you said, Patrick. So yeah. agree 100% on that. Yeah,
0: one of the other things I found that was it was uh, surprising. This is just one of those. Being from California, it's a nice sounding thing, but it's now in the nomenclature in the boardrooms, and that's ESG, the environmental, social, and governance uh, yep. uh, prerogatives. And the the issue about that is it's you know, it's ambitious, and it's aspirational, and it's really good stuff out there, and everybody's got great intents, but the rules for ESG are still fluid, and if you fall short of those rules, that can have catastrophic implications, and you mentioned this, but I didn't realize this is organizations like BDO, have a solution to that to keep companies abreast of that. Let's talk about ESG and then what BDO does for that, because this is a, uh,
1: a real big Absolutely. Deal. So first of all, in our survey, uh, Patrick, we added, this was the first time that we added an ESG questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what uh, came back on that, our survey showed that 94% of the fund managers uh, said that incorporating ESG investment criteria into their investment strategies was a priority to their LPs and only two and a half percent said it wasn't important. So I don't know that I'm surprised about that, but once again, it was a really large number and a very small number that uh, said that it wasn't important to the, to their LPs. And I think what's happening out there, you know, one, it's going to help out on exits. I think that everybody's looking at private capital fund managers are feeling the pressure from LPs and other stakeholders to think within a sustainable investment uh, framework. So ESG is about, you know, framing decisions to include the consideration of these risk factors. And, you know, they don't necessarily affect the financial statements uh, directly, but it's material to the sustainable operation of the company. And then I I know uh, many are working to uh, incorporate sustainable investment thinking into their business models, or there's also uh, regulatory issues, uh, Patrick. So the SEC has gotten in they're starting to, to look at, you know, certainly for public companies, but on the private equity and private capital markets, they're starting to look at the disclosures that are being made out there and and there's accountability. And then if you go overseas, certainly the regulators in the EU and some of the other places, you know, they have pretty, pretty stringent disclosure requirements You have to do out there. Uh, As far as the services, you know, we're uh, working with the, the funds to look at how they get systems set up to track, benchmark and see how they're doing. And there's certain, uh, metrics like RPIs or whatever that that they track and they give themselves grades and then they're tracking hey how how well are we doing on the various SEG components and that's important both you know for them from a business perspective to report back to the LPs and then I think uh, that there'll be a premium too to the extent you have a company that's yeah following ESG principles that you know then I think the return on investment will be there as well. And certainly, uh, you know, I think you'll get a premium on that.
0: Yeah, I think they, they, it's along the book titled, you know, The Infinite Game. You got a long game, a short game, and then the infinite game. And this, you know, dovetails right into that. And it's just, you know, implementation and establishing systems. And, you know, who better than BDO to come in and monitor and help help firms adjust. So it's not one rule for everybody, but it's it's, it's customized. So I think that's a that's a tremendous value add that you have, We think so. You can't have a survey like this without addressing uh, COVID, okay? And so, and and I don't wanna steal your thunder if you want, Uh, you had the, your report has the sentence of this whole event and and I'll leave it to you, but talk to me about, you know, how COVID impacted things now and going forward.
1: You bet, so first of all, it was in our, I think what you're referring to, we had that everything's changed, but nothing's different. Yeah, so everything's maybe, changed,
0: uh, but nothing's different. I mean, that's brilliant. So let me
1: explain that. Uh, first of all, I'm going to go through what uh, the funds told us about, you know, how things, have, you know, long-term impacts of COVID-19, especially specifically on deal-making. So specifically said digital capabilities of acquisition targets, you know, once again, a key variable in the deals. Importance of a robust risk management and acquisition targets, higher long, long-term long ongoing valuations for certain industries, clear robust supply chain strategies because obviously we saw some of the weaknesses and what can happen when the supply chain breaks down, fewer in-person meetings throughout the process, uh, lower long-term ongoing valuations for certain industries, and a short shorter due diligence process. So those are the main points that came out from the survey itself just on long-term impacts of COVID. But What do we mean by everything has changed, but nothing's different? And I'm going to throw out an analogy to you, uh, Patrick. So if you kind of think through, uh, think of the forest versus the trees. So if you look at the trees, you know, there's new species that pop up and maybe some grow faster than others. So if you throw that over to what's going on right now, you know, some industries are faring much better. They actually thrived and and grew and grew out of COVID-19. So you, you have those, you have certain ways that how we work has changed. So you have a lot of these new industries. And so, you know, from the tree perspective, we've got, you know, new species or, you know, once again, companies are growing, you know, there's been a significant change out there on the flip side. You know, if you look at the forest, I don't think anything, the overall picture has really changed. So, um, you still need to kick the tires. You still need to connect with leadership. Do due diligence. You got to return, get generate return on investment. And you know the, the the major thesis is if you you know tend to or properly uh, you know, build out these portfolio companies, you'll get superior yields. And you know basically that's you know the the big thing is to find quality deals. Um, basically, do smart things. Do add-ons. Hopefully, you don't overpay for it. And once again, it's all about return on investment. And I think fundamentally that's, you know, what it's all about. So hence, everything's changed and that a lot of the industries and how things are done has changed, but nothing's really different in regards to private equity and how they invest and what the process is for making their investments.
0: Sound business practices or sound business practices. And that's not going to Okay. So a- you know, absolutely. T- tactics might, but not overall strategy. Right? A- absolutely.
1: Good. Absolutely.
0: Right. Well, now Scott... This wasn't in the report, but I do want to ask you just about uh, because you're with private equity and, and throughout M&A, what COVID has taught also in, in the recent uh, experience right now is having insurance on M&A transactions, specifically reps and warranties insurance and then directors and officers tail insurance and tax policies and so forth. The early returns that we're getting on other services for 2021, rep and warranty is only getting stronger, It's only getting better. People are buying it more often and bigger policies, and it's because the track record has been just outstanding throughout this. And private equity, if something doesn't work, they cut it off immediately. But you know, don't take my word for it. You know, as the head, you know, both national and global with you know private equity, and they're in the business of mergers and acquisitions. What's your perspective on rep and warranty insurance? Good, bad, or indifferent?
1: Uh, absolutely. Great question, Patrick. And first of all, the others besides rep and warranty, all, all important. But rep and warranty insurance, uh, if you roll back four or five years, you know, it wouldn't it, as common. And, you know, saw it on some of the bigger deals. I'd say today, almost all the, the deals, both the buy and sell side, have rep and warranty insurance. And I think that's going to continue. And the major reason that they're getting reps and warranty insurance is, you know, first of all, from the buyer's side. You know, just to start out, we're generally a lot of the you want to negotiate what the major terms of the deals are, price and other things, and usually the indemnification escrow that's always not a non-productive uh, negotiation anyway. So where you have a seller that's uh, offering say a five percent indemnity escrow, but the buyer wants you know what market is about ten percent. So instead of uh, having you know negotiations probably non-productive on that bring in indemnification or I'm sorry, reps and warranty, uh, coverage. And, uh, it allows you to basically drop it down. You can drop it down to 1%, which makes, uh, the deal, the package more attractive to the seller. And then also you can negotiate, uh, you know, better, better coverage than you get out of the typical indemnification escrow. Also, um, it's generally a longer period where you can get a three year coverage period versus a one year. So, and then lastly, which I think is really important in, uh, you know, a lot of times in, there's going to be disputes, right? And it's a lot better if you have, a, especially a middle market companies, if you have the prior owners that, of the sellers are still coming in, they still have some, you know, some rollover equity, but they're real important to the business. The last thing you want to do is being, you know, having a pissing match or not, Sorry for the words, but you know, basically, suits or whatever the case is with prior ownership over the indemnity versus if you have the insurance company in there. Once again, it's not the same same issues, right? You can just negotiate with the insurance company about you know settling up on uh, whatever the you know reps and warranties were. Uh, as far as the the seller, um, again, well, it's easy because once again, they just want to get it closed as fast as possible. Reps and warranty insurance allows it to that, and if you can negotiate a one percent versus a ten percent, that means that they get more of the indemnification escrow to them instead of being tied up in a in a low uh, returning escrow account. So they can get more of their money and get it to work. So it's really a win win, and it's it's you know it 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 would be almost uh, uncommon not to see it in most deals these days.
0: Yeah, I, I would if if it's if it's done properly for the buyer if you present the terms to the seller where you either go uninsured with a big escrow and you're at risk for a major clawback, or we're gonna get this policy for you and your escrow goes from five or 10% transaction value down to 1% and you can keep the rest of the money because we're not gonna claw it back. 99 times out of a hundred, that seller not only will go that direction, but they'll happily pay all the cost. So if you're a buyer, okay, you've got all the benefits, you take all the tension out of the room, you get rid of that uncomfortable post-closing conversation saying, yeah, that escrow you wanted, yeah, we have to, you know, we lost it. Sorry. That's all gone. Combine that, that it's free because the seller's going to pay for it. I mean, yep. it's virtually bad faith on the buyer's part not to bring this up, at least be open to bring it up. What's great yep. is revenue warranty is now available for the add-ons where you're looking at sub-50 million dollar transactions. And those, you just pump those out. I mean, and, and we really appreciate it just in our industry because the, the claims history and the satisfaction rate on this product has never been higher. And I'm comparing that to any other insurance product out there. So we're very, very proud of it. And it's great to hear that. Yeah, it's been embraced by private equity, which does not like spending a lot of money on insurance.
1: Yeah, but once again, for all the benefits that you just relayed and what I did, once again, it just makes sense to get deals done, yeah. and also it, it's just a, a better way to get it done, get get deals done, get m- money back to the seller, and and also have proper coverage out there.
0: I'm curious, Scott. I know we didn't cover this earlier, but was there anything in the report that surprised you?
1: Um, what the some of the things that I guess that surprised me the most. Well, it was just I think we've already covered it, but you know, when you had uh, the the mutual funds and hedge funds jumping yeah. so far up that I was really surprised about that. I don't know exactly, you know, we don't go back and separately mm-hmm. interview the 200 uh, poll participants, but that was one I just wasn't expecting. I know that they do, you know, go out and do direct deals and some of the VC deals, but for them to be in the number two spot, that was really surprising for me.
0: Now, and, and again, you go the purpose of this is not only to take a quick snapshot back, but then using that data, you know, looking forward, what are some of the trends based on this that we can find What are the trends you see going forward, you know, in a macro, micro, whichever you like.
1: You bet. So some of the key takeaways from there, we already talked about ESG. So obviously I think ESG is going to continue to be more important. What we, we asked the, the funds on what they thought about asset prices and uh, 91% expected asset prices to rise in the next six months. So almost, you know, virtually everybody thought it would raise. And uh, there was about 50% 50% expected to raise between 10 and 24%. Wow. And then you had five and a half that that actually thought it would rise more than 25%. And we're talking about a six month period. So wow. That was uh, anyway. So I, I think the key takeaway there the way things are going, you know, with the, all the dry powder, the SPACs out there, um, prices are going to continue to go up. So it's key to do, kick a lot of tires and make sure you do a quality deal. It's
0: this, this like real estate in California. My goodness.
1: <laughs> but hopefully yeah. So what, what happens in the, you know, in, uh, 2022, I guess, you know, we'll see on that. But anyway, that was one of the big things out there. Also, the uh on taxation of digital services and products so Mm. it actually came in higher than uh, the concern about the rise in capital uh capital gains rates
0: could you clarify that uh, taxation on digital services so you're paying tax on SaaS kind of services
1: that's correct so it's uh, digital products and services and i think the reason it's going to be rising it's probably twofold that one there's a lot of obviously a lot of stimulus money a lot of uh expenses that both foreign governments as well as state governments are going to have to cover and also I think there's concerns with all the digitalization of products and services that you know how do you keep from losing your tax base because a lot of it you know has been typically on you know you have people or you have a physical presence in a location so there anyway there's a lot of activity going out there Uh, from the uh, foreign side there's there's a OECDs kind of a it, they're looking at uh, a framework of how to tax digital services and products. They should have something coming out in uh, the summer that'll give some guidance out there. Once again, all this, a lot of the States are changing up their policies on how to tax digital uh, services and products. And then lastly, I, I'll just mention Mexico is another key example. They just implemented a 16% VAT on uh, digital, um, electronic or digital services for B2B and, and B2C. So I think it's a real, it's a big issue. Once again, I think the countries and states are gonna have to continue to, you know, figure out how they get their tax revenue and how they cover some of the cost. And just with the, the big changes in a digital environment, you know, it, it's real important for, to understand how, what kind of impact that will have on the business, especially in uh, technology businesses. <laughs>
0: The the innovation doesn't stop at the at the tax level. That's for sure. So they're gonna yeah. they're gonna keep that going. We mentioned Scott that there are now five thousand plus private equity firms out there. They can't all be BDO clients. So, you know, for our members of the audience out there, if they wanted to get you know not only copy of the report which we will have uh, in our show notes to to linked up to, but how can our audience members find you and get access to the BDO private equity services?
1: Uh, well, first of all, uh, Patrick, I would like to thank you for having me on your podcast, but anybody, everybody's free to contact me directly. My email address is shendon at bdo.com or s-h-e-n-d-o-n at bdo.com. Or you can go to our website at www.bdo.com, click on our uh, industry, private equity, and there you'll find contact information. We also, there we do have copies of the current as well as prior surveys. We have thought leaderships and we, we also have a podcast out there. You can also sign up for uh, to be notified of you know future surveys, thought leadership or, or podcasts are coming out as well.
0: Well, Scott Hendon from BDL with your private equity uh, capital pulse report for 2021. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you here today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Patrick.